Wow. So, uh, okay, it's today, Tuesday, Tuesday, October 13th. Is that right? Something like that. So, Tuesday must be Rene Shadra night. Okay. You know what I discovered today? I discovered that election night is on a Tuesday. And our class is on a Tuesday. That is indeed true. But who's going to the polls? I mean, I, I already did absentee ballot. Well, hopefully am, everybody will be vote early, vote early. Yeah, there's I'm going because I'm worried. I'm worried about my mail-in ballot, so I'm going to actually go, I think. Gonna... Yeah, but you can, you can vote Oh, yeah, early. you're in Michigan. <laughs> Well, New York, many states have early voting. New York right. has early voting. We have a week. It starts on October 24th. Yes. Yeah. That's the day I'll be voting. New participant here tonight joining us. Ah. Here's Cy. <laughs> I see him. We can see you too. So uh, are folks okay meeting that night? Good. Yes. End at like 9.15 and then uh, you can stay up all night watching the news if you want. <laughs> End of the world. And hoping it goes better than last time that we went through that. I don't remember what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll bet. Yeah. So, returning to the pure realm of the Dharma from the uh, corruptible realm of politics, let's uh, start with our chants, chanting. But all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart. I take refuge in the three jewels in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart. I take refuge in the three jewels in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart. I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and the two supremely supreme ones to beautify our world, you are your equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude, Long Shempa, who perfected samsara nirvana. In the state of Dharmakaya, Trima, it was there a stainless light at your feet. I pray, grant your blessings, so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. I pray, can I understand tonight's reading? Yes, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I need to get the chance. I don't have, a, I don't know where they, maybe I missed them somewhere. You didn't have a chance to get the chance. Okay. I didn't have a chance, <laughs> right. You never had a chance. It's the way it is out here in Montana. <laughs> okay, I will send you the uh, the chance, the the uh, read me share your chance. Anybody else need the chance? 
Everybody else good? Thank you. It was, it was a September 15th email, I think. Okay. Uh, don't exit, sorry. So tonight, uh, tonight's section is uh, the Vaibhashika and the South Trantika approach to the, uh, the issues that are uh, together referred to or uh, discussed in what's called the Abhidharma literature. Longchenpa calls it the approach and the philosophical systems. And um, the Vaibhashika system and the Sautrantika system. So what are these systems for? It seems to me these systems are for understanding five things that occur in our world, trying to figure out how they occur in a sensical way that was available, given the tools available at the time these individuals lived. We're trying to understand, like, what is matter? I think it's helpful to understand that the, the general context of Buddhism was within the uh, Brahmanical tradition coming from the Vedas and the Upanishads, primarily the Vedas, though, at that time, that viewed the world as uh, uh, consisting of uh, this huge variety of different universes. There's the six realms, there's the three levels of desire, form, and formlessness, all kinds of different beings and things. So, you know, it's almost the opposite of in the West, we have the, the conundrum of like, what is mind? Where every, every you know, the, the scientists struggle with, you know, does mind exist? What is mind? How, how could mind be something? How would it interact with the brain and the body and matter? And, you know, how could that work? In the, in the East, it was almost the opposite. It's like, how can there be matter? How, how can, can uh, form actually exist in some logical way? So that was a big one. And then there's um, how do uh, things come about and disappear. And, um, you know, how does production happen? How does disintegration happen? And what, what they don't mention when they discuss this is that there's this general idea that, that phenomena exist. Uh, well, not general. There's this very, you know, strict rule that phenomena are impermanent. And they've observed impermanence <coughs> We all observe that in a sort of large frame where, you know, we see ourselves getting older over periods of time where, uh, you know, it's easier to see these changes when there's gaps in time. Like you see a friend you haven't seen in a few years, you, or uh, you visit the, the plants that you planted outside for the first time in a week and, you know, they've changed and things like matter changes it's like how does that happen how does that come about how does like a a flower bud that wasn't there before appear and then how does the flower that was there disappear like who did that who who did and uh 
you know, how did my hair turn gray and so on and so forth. Um, so there's this idea that uh, they, they come up with this idea of uh, gross impermanence and subtle impermanence, that things are changing on some sort of uh, molecular level very rapidly and then producing the next moment of their continuum. So this is sort of, these are like sort of background assumptions that are not really discussed but are taken for granted that are important to know. The first is that the, the universe is like this cosmic um, mind space, basically. And that um, phenomena are radically impermanent. And uh, so how does production and disintegration come about? So what is it that makes a Dharma appear? And what is it that makes it age? And what is it that makes it disintegrate? Are they pre-programmed to do that? If they are, do they do it only once? Why don't they do it repeatedly? Why don't they get produced over and over again? And if there's some outside entity that makes them, uh, that produces, that causes production, that causes aging, that causes disintegration, then is there a production of that entity? production you know is that entity a real thing is production a real phenomena you know these energies of the world production disintegration impermanence they're not matter and they're not mind so they fall into this category called uh, in, in our book what are they called distinctive formative factors so um, I've sort of Yeah, maybe there's a, a six six things that that we, they're trying to explain. I blurred between uh, production and cessation of phenomena that entails impermanence, and I blurred that into a, a that was the second of the now six. And the third one is that there's these energies in the world that are not matter, and they're not mind, but there's some a uh, special force that interacts between the two of them. And they call these dis distinctive formative factors. So they, they couldn't figure out well, like where else to place them. And, and there's the, you know, matter moves. And so what makes it move sometimes and not other times? And what, uh, what makes us think of, you know, go from one thought to another, those sort of things. And then, uh, so that's number three. Uh, distinctive formative factors, they're calling them here. And then uh, number four, is they're trying to explain uh, perception. How does perception come about? How do the senses operate? How do we see something? What, what is it, what part of us sees and how do we know that we see? You know, and, and partly they're, they're uh, trying to explain it in a way that includes an explanation of like, how come you see things in your dreams that aren't there? How come blind people, their eyes look fine, but they still can't see? Um, you know, things like this. They're trying to explain. With just, just seeing 
where you're, you're not just talking about the visual sense. No, why would I do right. that? All the senses. I'm using All senses. little yeah. visual as an example. Yeah. Right, okay. So like in dreams, you feel and, t and smell and hear. and I don't know, do you think in dreams? Maybe. Um, so perception, how does perception happen? karma happen? How does, uh, how, how do we explain the accumulation of propensity? How do we explain this, this idea that if you do something uh, harmful to someone else, it creates an energy that exists somewhere that ends up <clears throat> resulting in a negative situation for you? How did we explain that? Like that's cosmic glory. So it's almost like they came up with these religious or spiritual things first, and now they're trying to explain how they actually work. That's that's correct. Because <laughs> karma, so they're assuming there's karma, and now they're going to explain how it actually works. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas we try to go observation first, and then we come up with an explanation. We, I'm not. I'm not saying we better say, something. You know, I'm just making say, an observation. Yeah. We say that, but I think you could very easily challenge that that statement and say we have uh, we have a similar set of underlying assumptions. True. True. That we come about our so-called, you know, scientific method from. I'd like to remove that statement from the record. Ah, uh, strike that from the record. <laughs> strike it from the record. Yeah. They, they have instead of like a, a they have like a worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That going to try to explain. Some of it comes from the pre-existing Indian uh, system, and uh, some of it comes from. Uh, well, um, from the Buddha, uh, the Buddha uh, either confirmed existing sort of belief systems or shifted them somewhat. And so then they are trying to, to explain, well, how can these things, you know, come about? How does this make sense? So uh, perception and then uh, karma. And the last one is... What is liberation? How does liberation come about? So it seems to me that they're trying to explain these six things. They're trying to explain. And, and, and you know, I don't have on there what mind is. You know, it's sort of like they accept that there is mind, which is the opposite of us, as I said earlier. But um, they're trying to explain how matter happens. So we see these six topics being uh, broken down in different ways in, uh, and to some extent ever more subtle or not subtle sophisticated explanations that build on each other as we go through the tenet systems of the different schools. In some cases aren't they also looking at mind though? I mean is, is, are, you, are you only talking about the Vaibhashikas and that only comes later? Well, it's sort of like they're, they're, uh, they assume that there's mind and um, 
they're they are talking about like different aspects of mind. They may, but I mean, all of these are are kind of working from assumptions and then just looking more deeply to try to explain them better. It's, it's, it, I mean, yes. So it seems like mind is still a little bit included, even though I, I definitely agree with you that they come from the opposite viewpoint that we seem to. Yeah. It, it, I think it's, I guess the reason I didn't have mine is there. it feels like they're more coming at it from the point of view of like, well, how does, how does mind encounter matter? How does mind encounter karma? How does mind encounter perception? And then they'll alter the the uh, description of mind slightly to to accommodate those. So this set of six, though, is is something. It's a framework you're creating. This is not a formal thing. They use that. This is correct. Right. Yes. Thank you. I'm just I'm just trying to provide some some way of pulling us out of the weeds because you see he just like jumps immediately into the weeds, so to speak, of these these very fine. Uh, uh, both statements of, you know, there's this, this, and this in terms of listing the dharmas. And uh, and then secondly, how they interact. And then thirdly, he critiques them. And the whole bunch of it, particularly the critiques, are very um, difficult to understand. They're very cryptic. Yeah. Right. Can, Derek, can I just ask quickly, so when when were these things coming up again like it's after the buddha died right but how like when are we talking common era before after yeah so uh am i supposed to know that already <laughs> oh no no <laughs> yeah so let's do a, a little historical overview uh so when did the buddha live supposedly when did he die supposedly 20, 2,600, 2,700 years ago? Any, like. Anybody know the years? The old version was 560 before the Common Era to 480, approximately 80 years. Right, so 480 before the Common Era. Okay. There's a bunch of uh, scholarly research done in the last like five to ten years that asserts that he lived approximately 80 years later, which would have been like 480 to 400. So I think you you count backwards. Right. Oh, is that? that I, I got that right. Okay. Because you're heading up to zero or yeah. Something right. So you get younger, in in those days you would get younger as the years went on right okay uh so then uh after the buddha dies you have a series of these um councils you know basically the first one happens right away and then there's a hundred years and a hundred years uh so you have a few hundred years and, and then uh somewhere in the range of they say like two to three hundred years and the teachings start to get written down let's say in the new scheme, he died around 400. So then things get start getting written down around, let's say, 100 before the Common Era. And then you have a period of approximately 500 years where there's a sort of digestion period of an interaction period of people. Um, uh, for one... Um, 
I think we may have glossed over this and my apologies, but um, the compilation of what's called the Abhidharma is generally, agree it's generally agreed by Western scholars that the Abhidharma was not recited at the first council after the Buddha's death. They only recited the Sutra and the Vinaya and the Abhidharma did not yet exist. And that the Abhidharma was something that evolved organically over the next few hundred years. And, and uh, it's uh, different Abhidharma schools. And, and one of the main reasons why it's different why scholars believe this is that um, there's major differences among the schools of who authored the Abhidharma. Some of them believe the Buddha authored them and some of them believe major arhats authored them. And, um, uh, and th there's no early record of them in the way that there are sort of early records of the, the written versions of the sutras and the vinyas. The Abhidharma appears in written records later on. So, and isn't the idea that it's somewhat a compilation from the teachings of the Buddha rather than a direct teaching? That is very much what the Abhidharma is, but the, you know, one traditional school will say, well, the Buddha created that distillation during his life, and that's what we recited. That was what we recited after his death, was that distillation. And others will say, well, that happened centuries later. So the, the general consensus among scholars, Western scholars, is that uh, that happened later as a period of a natural sort of organic evolution in the thought of like, what did that guy say? What did that guy really say? Who was that guy? You know, who was that masked man? And what the hell did he say? <laughs> what were his teachings? And, uh, yeah. yes, ma'am. <laughs> Is there a, a lower school and a higher school Abhidharma, two different? You're jumping ahead. Oh, sorry. And so the, the first few hundred years of, uh, I said there was a 500 year digestion period, which uh, occurs, I guess, from the Buddha's death, 400 to about 100 in the common era or 200, maybe 600 years. And then there's this thing that appears called the Mahavastu. Uh, sorry, the, sorry, not the Mahavastu, the Mahavibhasha. V-I-B-H-A-S-H-A. -H -A -A. That is this huge compilation, like many thousands of pages of all these diverse different views about uh, what the dharmas are and what matter, you know, these all these issues that I rattled off. And um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a legendary text that uh, supposedly was created by one person, but clearly was uh, uh, this somebody pulled them pulled together like lots of different disparate texts from different traditions and just sort of cut and pasted them together in word. Actually, it was word perfect back then because word wasn't as po popular, if you remember word perfect. And um, um, that it was just like this amorphous thing. And so then you have in around four, 500, you have a gentleman named Vasubandhu who uh, is of the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, the early, or what, what Henrietta 
use this very pejorative term of lower Abhidharma. I really take offense at that, but I'll try not to blame you. Foundational. Oh. Is that a good one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You stick, just stick with chronological and go with earlier and later. You know, it's it's funny just to segue on that briefly. The lower, the the lower and higher actually, I believe, refers to geographical regions that the texts were predominant in, as opposed to their. Anyway, uh, it, it it later takes on that idea of uh, hierarchical. But anyway, um, he writes this text called the Treasury of Abhidharma, which is referred to repeatedly in this section. And it's called here the Treasury of Abhidharma, believe it or not. And there he sort of systematizes in a relatively manageable size book of uh, like a thousand pages as opposed to thousands, you know, sort of 10,000 pages. Um, All the different ideas of all the different topics. The the six that I mentioned, plus meditation and the progression of the path and the cosmos and um, time and all all this stuff. Um, And... uh, that becomes like a cornerstone text that encapsulates what's called the Vaibhashika tradition of Abhidharma. And he writes this book in two parts. There's a, a root verse, root verses in this traditional format where they have very uh, cryptic uh, root verses. And then he writes a commentary, an extensive commentary to it. And in the commentary, in the in the root text, he adheres to the Vaibhashika school's views. And then he does this tricky thing. And in his commentary, he actually sort of pokes holes in some of the views of the Vaibhashika school in the root text and, uh, exp- and says there's some problems and, ex- and offers some solutions. And in that, he's presenting what becomes called the Sautrantika point of view. And so that hits the that that's, hits the market somewhere in the the fifth century of the Common Era, and so that's that's the time scheme. And at the same time as we know, he's the younger brother of who? His older brother beat up on him constantly when they were growing up, and didn't give up throughout their lifetime. He was constantly bullying Vasubandhu. What was his name? Is that uh, Asanga? Asanga, yes. His name was Asanga. And as the legend goes, he thought his brother was uh, had a huge amount of potential but had the wrong views because he was a, a South Chantika Vaibhashika and Asanga was a Yogacara Madhyama Mahayanist. And so he uh, uh, somehow lured his brother into this uh, little house and then locked the door, and he, the story goes that he locked him in the in the house for like a week, and made him read all the Mahayana sutras, until finally his brother converted. <laughs> it's weird stories. Wait, you're saying Asanga made Vasubandhu Vasubandhu convert, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay, I thought the way you said it, I thought it was it sounded like the reverse. Yeah. And, and so then. Sangha, being the bully that he is, he writes 
another text on Abhidharma called the Compendium of Abhidharma, which becomes famous as the sort of higher, as opposed to Vasubandhu's lower Abhidharma. So they have lower refer, lower refers to uh, Vasubandhu's treasury of Abhidharma that has root verses and commentary, and then uh, higher Abhidharma is a Sangha's compendium, and it's much shorter for one thing. And uh, interestingly, though, in the Shedra monastic curriculum, the one that they study is Vasubandhu's because it's so thorough and so foundational. And if you don't understand that, you can't understand a Sangha's compendium of Abhidharma. And I'm sort of lost. Where did we go? We were about to dive in, and somebody asked, like, what's the time scale, right? So the time scale is that it's now 8, 10 Eastern time. We're on page, last week we made it from page 69, just to recap a little bit, just might be helpful. So on page 69, skipping the Vatsiputriyas, we start with the Vaibhashikas, and uh, he says there are five bases of knowables. Knowables are uh, like phenomena. And what's what's not clear in this text and in almost all texts that you read, there's different like categories of uh, phenomena that different translators come up with, usually not very systematic and very... Uh, uh, helpful or sort of uh, evident ways of classifying. Um, we say like, are they real things? Are, are they real phenomena? Are they knowable phenomena? Are they um, functioning phenomena? And those are three different levels of reality. So where did we have, let's see, Abhidharma classification of reality. Have I been anointed as a, what's it called yet, a, a host? Can I be hosted, please? Is Emily there? She's probably dealing with her son, right? Um, but like the, high, the highest level of, uh, the most inclusive term of all phenomena is knowables. All phenomena are knowable. And then there's uh, real and unreal knowables. So you can know something that's unreal. What is a prime example of an unreal thing, of an unreal uh, phenomenon? Horns of a rabbit. Horns of a rabbit and the self, right? You know, we all know what those mean, but they're actually not real uh, things. So they're unreal they're unreal things. You know, so that's a two-level system <clears throat> that I gave. Instead Did you of, want to put up something? Because you should be able to share a screen, right? Only if you're the host can you do that. Sorry, Derek. Okay. Sorry. I, I just uh, made it so you can do it. No problem. Thanks. As I was seeing the button. It looks like it's doable. And so... Um, on this one, I tried to show these. I just used different terminology when I spoke, so forget what I said. But, and, you know, go with this terminology for now. There's reality, 
the you know the realm of everything reality there's existing things and, and non-existing things non-existence or non-things existing things or things and, and uh, existent things perform functions and non-existence or non-things don't perform functions so like the horns of a rabbit don't perform any functions anyway um i forgot to uh give my segue that which is that um this presentation of abhidharma that's in the context of the different uh tenets of the different schools is like this sort of very condensed heavy dose of abhidharma and logic also we'll see that comes in later or sort of not logic but really valid cognition the idea of there being different types of cognition particularly if you read the footnotes were like jam packed with uh, very complicated information and um so uh to some extent this is presented as a lure you know the type of thing that you use when you fish and i'm trying to lure you all into being interested enough in abhidharma that and valid cognition by virtue of long chempa's presentation that in a future course we can go in detail through this and really sort of go through it in a methodical way so that it will actually make sense and it, it's it's uh, very difficult to make sense of this stuff it takes quite some time or, or it took me quite some time i should speak for myself you guys might get it instantly and um but it's sort of cool when you do and i found that it's worth you know going through it but this it helps to hear it a number of times and uh gradually it sort of comes together as many things in the dharma do so anyway the five uh bases of the knowable which are different kinds of substantial entities and we're not going to go into the term substantial at this point we'll we'll come back to that i think later on and so there's these five bases of forms mind mental states distinct formative factors and then uncompounded phenomena and it goes through the basis of form so then i try to uh give you charts of these and uh the one that corresponds best to the presentation uh let me try it again the presentation that he gives is the 100 so i'm going to screen share the 100 and uh let's skipping skipping form for currently um you have the mind which has the six consciousnesses in this tradition of vibhashika bases of mind and then we have the complicated ones are the bases of mental states and the distinct formative factors so here you have the bases of mental states and he gives them in groups and then in the notes he gives you the name of the groups which is uh difficult to deal with so the chart gives you the name along with the 
the members of the group. So the omnipresent factors are the first five. They're slightly different order. There's contact at the bottom. Focus is, um, I guess, you know, they, they all translate differently. I think it's application going up, sensation in, in discernment. They're all over the place. Feeling is sensation. So the order of them will vary. It's a little frustrating, the, the order of them, but sensation here is uh, what is normally translated as feeling, which is important to remember. And these uh, in the note, note 80, he says, um, These are known as the five integral factors which are necessary for any cognition, any act of cognition. So any act of cognition has these five mental factors. So cognition happens by there being a, uh, a mind, a, a type of consciousness. So let's say an eye consciousness happens. And along with that eye consciousness, you're going to have some smattering of these mental factors at the same times happen including you're always going to have these first five. That's why they're more normally called omnipresent because they exist in every moment of consciousness. There's the sense that you make contact with the object, you apply your attention to them, you have an, you intend towards them, you, know, you sort of turn the mind towards them, you identify them, you discriminate them, and then there's this feeling tone that comes along with it, a positive, negative, or neutral. And then there's the next category that he gives us, uh, intention, interest, mindfulness, meditative absorption, and, and understanding. And this is a little more similar to the version I have. Aspiration is intention here. And these are called object-determining factors. And then the notes he says, uh, these are known as the five mental functions for ascertaining objects, like the five integral. They are involved in any act of cognition. So any act of cognition will also have these five. And uh, for some reason, they call them object determining because they are responsible for um, <clears throat> the more refined identification of the features of an object that the mental factors in general are famous for. So those 10 will happen in every, any moment of any cognition. And then you have some variety of these uh, virtuous or afflictive factors that happen as well, depending upon what sort of uh, emotion you might say or state of mind you experience. And, you know, he just gives lists of them. There's the virtuous factors, there's the root afflictions, and then there's the secondary afflictions. And then there's this thing, this group called changeable mental factors, which uh, they're, they're called changeable because they're fickle. They don't, they don't uh, adhere to either uh, virtue or aff affliction. They can go either way. They can sleep can be good or bad. Remorse, investigation, analysis can be either positive or negative. 
though they're called uh, indeterminate is another way of talking about them. Derek, why is embarrassment considered a virtuous? Yes, yeah, some of the virtues are um, unusual and maybe the afflictions are as well, but um, the idea is that embarrassment is a positive quality in that we're in that at times it, it or it is positive when you experience um, the feeling of oh I shouldn't have done that or I did something wrong or uh, what I'm doing is not right and that's the sense that they mean embarrassment and if you don't have that sense of embarrassment then you're oblivious to the negative actions that you're taking same with shame same with shame like you know so embarrassment's like as you're doing it more than shame is like afterwards like oh i you know i i feel shame that i insulted somebody or i made uh negative slurs towards the western states you know i'm embarrassed that i did that i feel shame so they're put in this odd way and then you have these negative ways of putting non-attachment and absence of hatred you know instead of like love and kindness absence of bewilderment instead of you know wisdom or knowing and non-harmfulness instead of gentleness or kindness and then you have something straightforward exertion then the is the reason that they go with the negative because they in a sense when they start they teach first from the point of view of the negative like probably. don't do this and so then they invert it to become the positive it, it's either that you know we don't really know for one nobody knows the answer to that but for one it's either that or it's easier to define you know uh absence of hatred is if you're going to define that positively it's a little more tricky to define but if you say it's the state of mind that has the absence of hatred it immediate it's very specific it eliminates that one type of mind and uh then leaves open a, the the wide range of possibilities of mind without hatred and then the other issue is these are not exhaustive and everybody says that you know this is not an exhaustive list exhaustive list and at the same time they all have these lists that are, that have the pretense of being exhaustive so go figure but everyone will say oh they're not exhaustive they're supposed to be exemplary but it seems like they're meant to be sort of all encompassing anyway that's the scheme and then he goes into on page 71 he goes into this idea that um there's a sameness between the prime what's called the prime the the mind and i'm going to start using slightly different terminology to distinguish between the consciousness mind as consciousness and mind as mental factors what he calls bases of mental state which is a really odd term they're normally called mental factors and i'm going to say there's primary mind is the consciousness and then their secondary mind is the mental factors and there's a commonality between mind and mental factors in that they both 
for one originate from the same organ or sense base, the mind, which, you know, is not a physical entity, but is, is mind, is non-material entity. And they both have the same, it happens at the same time. They have the same objective reference. Uh, they're, they're both engaged with the same object. And, uh, that's pretty much it. A couple of them are sort of repetitive. So that's, that's the scheme of mind and mental factors. And they have uh, distinct formative factors, these guys. I gave this extra gloss on these by dividing them into two sets, which is how uh, one tradition approaches these, what in the book are called distinct formative factors and here are called non-associated formations. Non-associated because they're not associated with mind or matter. Distinct formative factors because they're distinct from mind and matter and they're formative. They participate in the formation of states of being, states of experience, experiential states. And so he gives this list in the book on page 72, acquisition, and then these meditative states, um, the faculty of life force, production, deterioration, duration, and permanence, words, phrases, letters, um, the ordinary state of, of being, continuity, differentiation, correspondence, connection, number, sequence, location, time, and grouping. So in, a different, in addition to having different uh, translations that you'll find in basically every text that you look at, the translators have a variety of translations. Also, there's different versions of these lists. So let's see, I have two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 24 of these. They have, I don't know what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, I have 24, okay. So I've, I've split them into what this later one tradition does. It says some of them are associated with what's called the person, a person and some are not. And in the Madhyamaka tradition, this idea of a person becomes a major issue. But uh, like, you know, words and letters and phrases, they have the, the, the ability to convey meaning. How do they convey meaning? How do like the, the arrangement of lines on a paper, on a piece of paper, or on, on a surface, not paper, you know, like in the sand or in the dirt or on a rock or whatever, and water. How does, the, how does the arrangement of lines manage to convey meaning? And uh, there's sort of different le levels of meaning. There's the letters that make up an alphabet, and then there's words that have a, uh, an individual sort of referent and then there's phrases that have, uh, you know, an assemblage of words that can give different meanings to the words when they're combined with other words. How does that come about? Is uh, there's some sort of magical power that these dudes have? Yeah, 
Derek? Yes. So, so the actual, um, uh, let's in this case say the, the, not the sound, but the, the written word or letter is, is a, could be a form, but the meaning itself is what is an, a NAF, a non-associated formation? That's is that what, the, the idea? That's one of the arguments. One of the arguments that we saw in the book was, are letters actually matter because mm -hmm. you put them out? Or are they not matter because really the letters are just uh, your representation of what exists in your mind? You know, the letter A exists independent of your writing some assemblage of letters on a, on a surface down. So mm -hmm. it really is not matter. The letter A is, is some sort of conceptual idea of, a, of, a, of the embodiment of a sound in a, graphical, in a graphic representation, right? Mm -hmm. And sound itself? Sound itself. What is sound itself? Yeah. Where does that get categorized? Anybody? This is, you know, form. It's, it's form. a symbol. It's a symbol. No, it's and form, isn't it? Form. It's form. Sound is a symbol? It's a symbol. I mean, they're delving into the basis of semiotics that we, we, that we discovered just, you know, in the last century. That uh, the idea of mental factors... Um, being attached to symbols and signs. Sound is a symbol. I like that. Somebody else is saying that sound is, is matter. Well, it's a symbol, not with a C, but with an S. <laughs> with a... I think we got that part. Okay. Symbol. On the what chart, it's a form. On the chart, sound is a form. Thank you. So sound, Doesn't sound have a, a special category? Why would sound be special? <laughs> well, I think in the in the earlier traditions, the pre-Buddhist traditions, it has a special. They they put a special emphasis on sound, right? Like being like the origin of things and all that sort of stuff. So I think is that what you're talking about? Yeah, maybe so. That's not necessarily from the Buddhist point of view, but I think right. that predates it. Uh -huh. But, you know, these are good questions. It's, it's like uh, one of the basic exercises that you would do in studying the Abhidharma is how do things relate to, how, to each other? What categories do they fall in and why? And in terms of like specific examples within sound. And uh, you see this odd reference to, we, we looked at somewhere it came up this idea of an echo, like if somebody's voice has a, echoes and um, you say something and as you say it, it has meaning and that's created meaning that's a sound created by a person. They divide sound into two types, sound that conveys meaning and sound that doesn't. And, uh, you know, when people talk that conveys meaning, but if you talk and it gets reverberated, um, that reverberation, if you can understand the words, has meaning, but it was not created by a human. 
And so they come up with a sort of a conundrum because they meant, really meant sound created by humans is one cat. Anyway, they have these little, you, you know, all systems have these little problems to them. And you'll see on page 72, this, that second full paragraph, nine phenomena exist in the realm of the futures. <laughs> the other thing is that the Vaibhashika school, uh, in, in their answer to how does karma function, they say that phenomena exist throughout the three times, which to us, us is just like absurd and totally crazy. You know, for us, we're like, that happened in the past. It's not existent. And they're like, well, how can you remember it? How can you think of it if it doesn't exist anymore? How can it have an impact in the present if it doesn't exist anymore? How can the rain from yesterday that produces today's flowers not exist anymore? Doesn't that rain exist in its, in its result? And by virtue of us thinking about it, we're, we're, uh, the past is, is existing in our present. You know, so they have a very bizarre way of viewing phenomena throughout the three times. It, it, it is bizarre, but it's actually the thought that physics has come to after all these centuries, that time is fluid and space is also fluid and, and there's no separation between past, present and future. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So that's how they came up with... Uh, the sort of uh, explanation for how does karma transition through time states, past, present, and future. Um, let's... Um, I'm going to sort of skip this thing about what exists in the future and what exists in the present and I'm going to focus in on this issue of, for them, if you have a, a phenomena called um, production, where is that? Birth. I think birth is a translation of production. So if that's a phenomena, if that's a, 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 a knowable entity, production, then doesn't it have to get produced like all other phenomena? You know, you, 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 you assert that there's a phenomena called production and that there has to be production because in order for anything to appear, it needs to be produced. And so there's this notion of there being a thing called production. And then you come up with the idea, well, if production is a thing, then why is it special? Doesn't it need to be produced also? So it's making, so it's making, well, I mean, we sort of tend to think of production as like a verb, like a process, but, or, or, right, but so, not a thing. Why, how, what made them think of it as a thing? Yeah, let's start there. So you have, uh, let's say, the production of a sound. And um, uh, what what they, the way they would interpret you your statement about sound is that 
sound has within it, inherent within it, the faculty uh, or the power of production. Whereas they say, well, that leads to an absurdity. Why wouldn't sound be produced uh, either any time of day or night or like repeatedly infin infinitely if it has the nature of production within it? So they say, well, there's a separate dharma that functions to produce a sound. And um, sound... But then who controls whether that separate dharma arises or doesn't arise? Isn't there another dilemma that is just getting pushed down the road there? Obviously, yes. And they say they, they go one order, as you saw in the text. <laughs> so, well, there's a production of production, but there's not a production of production of production. You only need a second order of uh, redundancy. <laughs> and then they say like, okay, so you have a sound. What causes that sound to stop? or to deteriorate, or to fade away. Why does that sound fade away? And when you would say, well, uh, it has w inherent within it, it's sort of programmed to fade away. And they would then argue, well, why doesn't it fade away before it comes into being? You know, or, and then why doesn't it fade away like all the time? Why doesn't it disintegrate all the time? So they come... But you're saying we would think that it's programmed, pre-programmed within, or you're saying they think that? We don't, we wouldn't say it's programmed to fade away, right? We would, I mean, wouldn't you just say the causes seize and therefore the sound seizes? Uh, the, so you look at it in a, in a momentary basis. You said the causes and the sound, the uh, the causes happened, and they caused a moment of sound or a particle of sound, right? Uh huh. So how are you going to get rid of that particle of sound? Well, if it's viewed as momentary. Um, what makes it momentary? Uh, okay, so we're just getting into the question of whether, uh, yeah, destruction is built in or not. Uh, why does it, like if you ring a gong, why doesn't it go on forever? Yeah. So then, you know, if you look, it's easier if you look at like uh, uh, tangible matter, you know, atoms, and you say, okay, you have an atom of earth, let's say, or a particle of earth. Does that particle of earth also have, you know, under its left arm, it has a particle of production, you know, and then it has on its right arm a particle of uh, subsistence here, or here's becoming subsistence, and then old age and annihilate, uh, somewhere has deterioration or something passing away. So, you know, does that atom of earth have these other atoms with it? And they sort of go off in a, in a set sequence, you know, where the f first the becoming goes off and then the subsistence happens, <laughs> then the old age and the deterioration. So, and, and you know, if, if you by mistake, had a, an atom of Earth that was born without destruction, it was made improperly, it would just exist forever. You know, so on the, they're trying to like think on the molecular level, how are these things functioning? So they say there are these separate energies that, that arise in, uh, in some sequential natural order accompanying the arising of, a, of uh, 
a particle of sound or a particle of earth. So is this their way of explaining creation? I uh, mean... Their way of, of explaining cause and effect. Cause and effect, yeah. But... Um, Not creation in terms of the first creation. Right. Know, it sounds like we're talking about the first... Right. Right, right, right. But, but and then there's an impermanence here too, right? Yeah, everything is programmed. You know, uh, that's sort of like an omnipresent factor that every phenomena has impermanence. Mm -hmm. And then you get these these things where, like a, a superior, mother superior, which uh, the the term superior refers to somebody on the path of seen or above, like a arhat superior sees that all dharmas possess impermanence are marked by impermanence mm -hmm. and they're sort of literalistic about that and they they say well well then they're all phenomena possess the dharma of impermanence they're marked by this dharma called impermanence and that's a universal dharma because the mm -hmm. are see that all the, the nature of all dharmas is impermanence so mm -hmm. dharma like our conglomeration, you know, we read this this way that dharmas come together and they have particles of of all this this matter. Form has all these different matter particles, but then uh, all dharmas come together with all these different other things like impermanence and uh, acquisition. You know, so acquisition is how do we explain karma? As you roll around in bad activity. You, you, that smell of that negative activity uh, adheres to you, and you acquire negative karma, or you acquire positive karma. How else can karma happen? And then that gets transferred to the next moment of a continuum of whatever it is. <laughs> you know, it's a little mind-boggling of like. Of of the 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 weird way that they conceptualize these things, but on the other hand, how what and these things again are are considered neither mind nor matter. That's right. Thank you. I was just going to ask that. Thanks. Yeah. So um, so the notion of like I mean when we think of things like characteristics, but they see these things as as. They're not matter, so it's not that they're more tangible, like you were talking about molecular level, but it's not really quite at that level because that would make it matter. It's it's a little bit more uh, undefined than that. Yeah, it's like it's it's like their energies are like you know strong and weak uh, uh, gravitational force or what is it called strong right. magnetic forces. They're like that sort of thing. Right, it's kind of like a retinue of energy or something. Yeah. Yeah. Einstein or the physicists come up with, you know, these the, the gravitational field around particles. So they they either attract and stick together or they repel each other. And, you know, what is gravity? Why do we stick to the earth? You know, and it's it's a similar idea that that uh, phenomena have these sort of gravitational forces of uh, coming into being and subsiding for a moment and then they deteriorate and they then they disappear and that what you know what causes the the next moment of arising in the continuum of an object 
is it is it the disintegration of its prior moment or is it the the causes that created the first moment exist again of course those those simpler minds like mine would say the thing isn't re-arising every moment anyway just leave it solid <laughs> <laughs> and then for, for subtle for deterioration and things that you can actually see you know you come in and the, the table is gradually like wearing away and getting rubbed away and uh, the, the floor is gradually getting deteriorated by his chairs and feet and stuff you know anyway it's one it's one you know very uh, in some ways crude but in, in other ways very uh, sort of in in definitely creative and inventive system for trying to understand how do things work? How does the world function? You know, and it's sort of cool. But it obviously has like enormous, it raise, you know, it almost raises more problems, uh, certainly as many problems as it potentially solves. Well, the, it's the production without a producer. So what do you have? Because we tend to think either something produced it, and let me see if I can produce it. But it's really a combination of triggers, causes, and effects. There is no producer, just production. And you just happen to be one of the forces that came in and triggered it with your karma. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it is pretty cool, though. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a total different way of... It's very. This produces that. No, there is no producer. Just production. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what they're they're trying to get at is production without a producer. There's like no um, agent. There's just this uh, massive uh, interweaving of constant dharmas doing what they're all programmed to do, what they all, you know, that's their nature as they do this. So the production dharma, that's all he, that's all he does. You know, his union contract is very specific. He produced, he won't disintegrate for you. He won't impermanent you. He won't uh, sound like anything. He won't taste like anything. <laughs> very I thought part of it had to do also with, um, one moment causes the next moment. Uh, isn't there also that sense of momentariness? Like one moment of a candle flame produces the next moment? There is. There definitely is. There is that, that uh, background of impermanence that I tried to t describe a little bit at the beginning, how there's gross impermanence and then subtle impermanence. Mm -hmm. You can deduce from gross impermanence that there's got to be some, some type of impermanence happening on a subtle level, like all the time, or maybe most of the time. So, so the, I mean, given that notion of understanding impermanence as being, then is what they're trying to do, create defining the mechanics of why and how things are impermanent. Even though everyone accepted impermanence, they were trying to figure out, okay, how does it actually work? Or yes. is it they were trying to figure out a little bit of a different, rather than just understanding that impermanence is inherently there, they were trying to break it down further. 
and it's part of their overall uh, scheme of Buddhists, which is based on this notion that that you can actually achieve liberation by knowledge. And so they're trying to know everything. <laughs> that actually by knowing how things work, you can achieve liberation or enlightenment. Right, got it. So then we have, let's see. We have uncompounded phenomena. Space is a real thing for Vaibhashikas. The absence of sense, uh, tactile matter and different types of cessation of consciousness. And in this paragraph, and I'm on page 73, says for the Vaibhashikas, what is incorruptible are these three uncompounded phenomena. Does that ring any bells for you guys, the term incorruptible? Permanent? No, what is called well, in, well, referred to? Impermanence? I'm getting confused. Is that like what nature type of thing you mean? It's things that you, it's. Uh, we have the four axioms on page 67, the first full paragraph. It says the four axioms that define Buddhist doctrine are as follows everything compounded is impermanent. So, you know, these are givens. So, Everything that is corruptible, corruptible uh, their suffering, su surfing, causes suffering. So, everything compounded all is uh, corruptible. And for the Vaibhashikas, what is incorruptible are the three uncompounded phenomena. Not not everything compounded is, is corruptible, sorry. But the un uncompounded are incorruptible plus consciousness as a coordinating mental faculty when it's focused on the truth of the past as well that is associated with that consciousness so there's some idea that that uh some uh, some type of past consciousness is not corrupted by suffering usually they say that cessation is not corruptible well cessation is the uncompounded phenomenon sorry he just went through the cessations as the third noble truth. So the third noble truth is incorruptible, i.e. beyond suffering. And the, uh, the fourth noble truth at a certain point, sometimes they pinpoint it, it's really from the path of seeing onward or something like that. It's, it's the absence of suffering. Anyway, and he has his refutation. The system's position cannot be suspended. For three reasons, the assertion that minute particles are ultimately real entities is untenable. And I think that's one of the more easily understood uh, systems and uh, uh, refutations. You know, this idea that there are these partless particles that don't have sides, but somehow they conglomerate <laughs> is, you know, it's a nice fictional description, but it really just doesn't make any sense logically and then secondly the assertion that mind and mental states do not involve reflexive consciousness is untenable yeah, uh, i don't know why they said that <laughs> so he's going to go through them on the next page so let's read the third one and then we'll go through two and three and this is its position on distinct formative factors it's untenable 
Second, so on page 74, that second, uh, the first full paragraph. Second, given that the Vaibhashikas do not accept that there is a reflexive function of consciousness. So everybody clear on what reflexive function of consciousness is? Self-awareness. Yeah, self-aware, aware of itself. So consciousness can be aware of an, of an object, like a mental state, like it can be aware of, the, of anger. It can be aware of feeling sad. It can be aware of the feeling of desire or um, jealousy. Or consciousness can be uh, aware of uh, sense objects, color, sound, things like that. But consciousness can also be aware of itself, according to some traditions. Vaibhashikas do not believe in that function of consciousness. According to them, what cognizes the objects of consciousness could not be cognized by consciousness itself. So this is one of the big debates in the Buddhist tradition, the different schools, is whether there's reflexive consciousness or not. And you may, maybe if you read the notes, you saw that the Vaibhashikas and the Madhyamakans are alike in refuting self-reflexive consciousness, whereas the Sautrantikas and Chittamatras agree sort of one of the little oddities that the Vajikas agree with the Vaibhashikas on anything. <laughs> but it's sort of a larger object uh, subject that will unfold as we go through because it's one of the major themes. So to, to forge ahead, third of production, deterioration, duration, and permanence for something other than the compounded phenomena they affect. So he's He's arguing against the way that they present their distinct formative factors and the way that, so he says, if they're separate from compounded phenomena, they affect, which is basically all compounded phenomena includes mind, mental factors, and the distinct formative factors themselves are all. This would mean that these phenomena themselves were without production. without duration, without a deterioration of permanent. The proof of this would lie in the Vaibhashika's own contradictions. So there's this, this, uh, this comes back to what we talked about earlier, where I said they propose that there's a second, there's only two orders of the activity of these distinct formative factors. So there's production of sound, and there's production of the production of sound, but there's not production of the production of sound. Not production of the production of the production of the production of sound. And uh, he's saying that's just illogical. Why would it only stop at one point? The, the, the way you've construed them just doesn't make sense. But anyway, the Sautrantikos theoretically take a major step forward in their view of how the world works, how things work. They have bases of form. And uh, one, of the, one of the things they quibble over is, uh, is this idea of uh, does, the, does a vow create a, a form or not? And this is not a huge uh, important subject. So let's see. Uh, on page 75, this fourth sentence down, fourth line down says, as for other bases of form, the Sautrantikas hold that the sense faculties 
And the sense faculties are the subtle matter that resides within the sense base. So it's really helpful to get that, that language down. The sense base is um, the physical object where the sense faculty resides. And it's easier by example. So the eyeball is a sense base. And within the eyeball in this system, there's the sense faculty of sight. And the sense faculty of sight is some sort of subtle matter that resides somewhere in the eyeball. And the uh, sense faculty of hearing is some subtle matter that resides somewhere inside the ear. And the same for the nose and the taste and the body, right? So the sense faculty is the perceptive material that resides somewhere inside the base. The base is the gross sense organ and the faculty is the subtle capability of perception. And why do they come up with this? Because they, they've experienced many different varieties of people having distorted sense spaces that do or don't impact the sense faculty. And so they come up with this idea that there's a difference between the faculty and the sense base, right? People can have no ears and still hear. You know, people can have birth defects like no ears, or you can cut somebody's ear off and they can still hear. Or they can have um, uh, perfectly good eyeballs, but they can't see. You know, so in that case, their sense faculty is damaged, but the sense base is not. Whereas in the, in the, you cut somebody's ear off, you, you damage the base, but you haven't eliminated the faculty. Anyway. They say that the faculty still exists even though a person is not hearing? They, they say that the faculty is damaged if a person is not hearing. Uh -huh. You know, somebody can have perfectly fine-looking ears, but uh, if they can't hear, then there's a there's a, uh, a defect in the faculty, not the base. So they say uh, the Sautrantika hold that the sense faculties are subtle forms, as opposed to gross form, that serve as the governing conditions. Or the, uh, you'll see in other literature the term dominant condition for consciousness, for the sense consciousnesses. And that sense objects are the referential conditions. You'll see the term object conditions usually because they present data to the sense consciousness. The sound trontigas maintain that obvious kinds of matter, and by, by the term obvious, he means evident, clearly evident kinds of matter. Not that a subject is obvious, but that the actual matter is obvious and that it's per easily perceptible. That evident kinds of matter are formed by the amassing of indivisible particles that converge without actually being in contact with one another. So he, he covered two different things. One was how perception works. They have a slight nuance on that, which is huge actually. And then uh, how do they explain these uh, partless particles, Lori? I, I just think it's really cool that they came up with 
indivisible particles that don't actually aren't actually in contact with one another because that's you think like, about the picture of the atom they don't you know, actually that, yeah, they yeah have, how do, i yeah. wonder why that's so important to them though well if they touch then you have this conundrum of they can't be partless. They need to have a sign. Right. Okay, then they can't be indivisible because there's yeah. touching in that. Touch okay. the particle, and so the side that touched the particle is different from the side that didn't touch the particle. So they come up with this these un, uh, untouchable particles, which is a funny term, untouchable. But, uh, from a different point of view. Path. Yeah, 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 they came to that. Anyway, it's kind of cool. This logical conclusion about the way these particles must be, and they sort of paste that logical conclusion on the on reality and say, well, that's the way it must be. It's the only way they can, you know, we see matter, we touch it. It's, you know, obviously we walk into the walls, we stand on the ground. So somehow it's happening. Right. <laughs> can you imagine the, if, if they were to be able to encounter the current quantum physicists and and all of that, to a certain extent, they might actually be able to relate to it and say, right. that's what we're trying to get at, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I've lunch. I would certainly enjoy going out <laughs> afterwards, I think. Uh, let's see. So uh, perception in the next se section, bases of mind and mental states for the Satron, because among the bases of mind and mental states, the five sense consciousnesses and their attendant mental states. And by that, he means the, uh, the uh, mental factors that arise with those consciousnesses. Take the five kinds of sense consciousness as their frame of reference, but they do not actually perceive these five kinds of objects. So the Sautrantika, let's see, instead the situation is similar to that of a person's face presenting an image identical to itself in a mirror. The idea is that some, somehow the image of something shows up in a mirror without actually touching the mirror and without impacting the mirror, without being in the mirror. This sort of magical uh, appearance of an image in the mirror and the idea is that uh, outer sense objects somehow cast an image into the sense faculty and then consciousness sense consciousness the object of sense consciousness is the image that resides in the sense faculty not the outer obvious object and so they come up with this this part of it's this logic that well consciousness is so different from matter that consciousness can't how could consciousness actually interact with matter so they come up with sort of pseudo matter that uh, sense faculty is sort of subtle matter and subtle matter is can interact with mind because both mind and subtle matter are subtle, so they get along better. And so when we're conscious, when our senses are consciousness of an object, they're actually consciousness of the replication of that object in the sense faculty, which again is like, you know, just like what modern neuroscience, you know, the light, you know, uh, projects 
light rays into the eyeball and then we perceive the, the uh, transformation of that light, those light rays in the nervous system. That's what we perceive in the cerebellum, the, the uh, visual cortex in the back, whatever it's Derek, called. Yes. So the Vaivashikas actually uh, would say that we, we make contact. We actually make contact with those objects. Right, that's right. But they, the Sautrantikas say, no, that, they that say can't that happen faculty does but the sense consciousness does not does not okay so they come up with this idea that in some places is uh translated as the aspect of the object yes cast within the, the faculty it's the object of the sense consciousness where uh sometimes you see this term the appearing object the object that appears within your uh, uh, sense faculty. So here he's using this term data. He's, he's like using data as, as a synonym for aspect. The data, it's like the object transmits data, <laughs> whatever data is data into the sense faculty and then the consciousness perceives the data that now is is residing in the sense faculty. That ones and zeros maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And and so then they called the outer object imperceptible because we can't actually see gross matter. And partially this has to do with how can like imp the the uh, uh, partless particles are imperceptible because they're infinitely small. But aren't they? But when you're saying imperceptible, do, do they mean that they're imperceptible from the point of view of a consciousness, as opposed to a faculty or whatever it is you're saying? You're saying at one level there is a direct relationship, and then at the other level there's not. So imperceptible by either faculty or consciousness by both faculty. And so somehow the conglomeration, you have this illogical. This is that thing with the mute and the, 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 uh, the, that one can see, but can't describe essentially, or that, that whole logic that, uh, or the, 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 it's like the, uh, what is it? The mute who tastes sugar that they can taste it, but they can't, Describe it so only the consciousness can understand it, but the the faculty is the only one that can actually perceive it. So then, on page seventy six, we have a description of the progression of consciousness in the in the third paragraph. So, as for consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty and its attendant mental states. They maintain that direct perception by the mind occurs in a second moment after an object is perceived by the consciousness associated with a given faculty. That is when the data present themselves, they offer their credentials and the object in question is perceived because of the data that resemble it. Um, and in the footnotes, he, he gives a description. Let's see, 126. 
So, in, in the footnotes, it says objects have both general characteristics, which are the result of data arising in conceptual consciousness in a vague or imprecise way, and specific characteristics, which present themselves to a given faculty. And this is a, a very uh, loose and uh, not very thorough way of describing that there's there's two types of cognition. There's conceptual cognition and there's non-conceptual cognition. And the sense cognition is non-conceptual. And mental cognition can be either non-conceptual or conceptual. And when then the mental consciousness becomes conscious of the of a sense consciousness other than the mental consciousness, one of the five sense consciousnesses, it initially has a moment of direct non-conceptual cognition of its object. And then that leads to a succession of conceptual moments of cognition in that mental sense consciousness where we think about the thing. We think we come to associations or we decide whether we like it or not or whatever. But um, so there's this idea that it, in a sort of moment one, we have the uh, object presents itself to the sense faculty. In, uh, in moment two, the consciousness becomes aware of the sense of the aspect or the data in the sense faculty. And then moment three, the mind perceives the sense consciousness's um, experience of the data. And all of those are non-conceptual. And then moment four, we have a conceptual moment of consciousness where <clears throat> the, um, the object has of the, the data has been turned into a general idea of table, chair, flower, or whatever. You know, up until that point, it was like lines and colors and shapes, and then it it shifts and it becomes a thing that you know we label a labeled object, and that and this is where we have the description of what Cynthia was referring to, where we have a mute with good insight, with a good eyesight rather, and. Uh, uh, and some other uh, analogies like a, that. A blind person, the other one is a blind person that can talk, I right. think. Right. <laughs> um, distinct formative factors. Another aspect of the uh, Soundtrontic is that they have a different view of the distinct formative factors. Um, as for just so on the bottom of 76, he says, as for distinct formative factors, the Sautanticus hold that these are contexts involving form, mind, and mental states, which are the more sort of concrete types of uh, phenomena among the, the list. Um, I'm going to skip the parenthetical. And so they do not consider these factors to be substantial entities that are distinct from those of three, these three uh, categories. What the hell does he mean? 
people that these are contents and they don't consider them. So, but basically, this part where it says, so they do not consider these factors, the distinct formative factors, um, because he says they're contexts involving the other dharmas. They're contexts, uh, but they so they don't consider them to be substantial entities. The the footnote is helpful, actually. Yeah, one one twenty nine is let's see. That is the three categories of form, mind, and mental states. Although the subtrantikas recognize the same formative factors, they consider these factors to be only nominally existent as concepts. So they they uh, develop this uh, more sophisticated gloss on a sort of hierarchy of phenomena where they say that there's um, entities like form and mind and mental states that have a greater reality status. They exist beyond conception. Then the distinct formative factors, the powers, are really conceptual projections. They're, they're sort of second-order phenomena. They have a lesser reality status than matter and mind and mental states. And uh, you may be familiar with this terminology that's then become more prevalent later on in the tradition of calling uh, form, mind, and mental factors specifically characterized phenomena. They're specific instances of real things, functioning things, whereas the uh, distinct formative factors are generally characterized phenomena in that uh, they're generalized um, ideas. They're generalized ideas. This, this, uh, um, like this idea that there's like a particle of production and a particle of impermanence and subsidence, subsidence and old age and deterioration that accompany a particle of matter is, you know, absurd. And uh, they're just a conceptual way of understanding how production and impermanence come about. That they have these features of being produced and coming into existence and then deteriorating and then disappearing. And that occurs with forms, mind, and mental states. But those, those features of production and impermanence and so forth are conceptual imputations. They're not actual phenomena that you can observe that produce a function. Did, did, did they at that time recognize also that the, I mean, the, the notion of production being a concept because the notion of something produced also was a concept? Oh. Were they there yet or not yet? No. Oh. It only came later. As you saw here, they very much hold that uh, form, that which is produced, either form or a, or a consciousness or a mental factor, a mental state, are, are totally real things. Right. So they ultimately exist? They ultimately exist. Those are real entities. Okay. So their ultimate existence and the, the, uh, the formative factors are not 
ultimate existence. They become relative phenomena. They become not, they don't really have ultimate and relative. They say there's genuinely real things or form, mind, and mental factors, and not genuinely real things are the form, formative factors that work on them. They're these sort of mysterious, they're like the way that things operate and we've, with our conceptual mind, we've extracted that there must be these sort of agents of change, but that that extraction is a is a conceptual fiction. There's no, you know, buddy responsible for production on the football team, and nobody responsible for destruction, and so forth. And so then, in terms of like, how do they explain karma? They then end up explaining karma that phenomena their nature is to instantaneously go through those phases of of uh, subsiding you know as soon as they're produced they are programmed as their nature to exist for a moment and then deteriorate and then disappear as opposed to some other entity entering this 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 field and uh, acting upon them and you know that has its own problems as well but uh, I think it's the force yeah, the force be with you yeah so let's see the refutation let's see if we can do the refutation real quick uh, six reasons it's untenable to assert that external objects are, external, are ultimately real so he's coming from the point of view of the Prasangika Madhyamaka school and all his refutations it's it's uh, he doesn't really take the view of the next school necessarily. It's a little bit jumps ahead, but uh, this idea that there's external objects is not tenable. And uh, first he lists these. It's untenable to assert that obvious forms of matter or evident forms of matter that manifest have the same nature as consciousness. It cannot be proved that there are objects that present sense data. It is untenable to assert that mind is utterly non-existent during periods of meditative stability. It's untenable to assert that generic ideas are real entities of the perceptual process. So generic ideas are like the distinct formative factors that we were just talking about, generally characterized phenomena. And the specific characteristics of sound cannot constitute an actual expression of meaning. <laughs> That's a good one, and it makes the list. So why don't we pause there, and we'll go through these refutations next week, and they will lead us actually into the Mahayana approach of the mind-only school in particular. So I hope you don't mind if we take a little bit of a relaxed point of view and go through this material slowly, and at least try to get some of the language down. It's sort of impossible to understand, but at least we can pretend by getting the language down. Any objections? You're all muted, so I can't hear any. So I like that. I think it's that great. sounds yeah. good. Yeah, me too. Okay. It's all and I'm getting a lot more out of it this way. Good. <laughs> Oh, then let's dedicate our merit and call it an evening. 
May this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of Sam Sarah. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the redeemed's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. That's May the force be with you. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.